Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Sycamore Tree, where we come to hear personal perspectives of scripture. I'm your host, Reverend Katie Pond, and today we'll be reading scripture with Jim Allison. Hello. And Philip Perriman. Good morning. Jim and Philip will be leading us in a seminar on Paul on October 4th and 5th. So we have changed the scripture for Sunday, October 6th, and we will be using a passage from Galatians, and we'll be using that passage for our podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us, and before we get into today's text, we will play our favorite little game called Show Me Your Roots, where each of us answers a series of short answer questions to reveal a little about ourselves and what influences our interpretation of scripture. All right, Philip, you can go first. Are you ready? Okay. When you were little, did you have a pet fish or a pet snake? And if not either, which would you have wanted? I didn't have either, and uh, snakes are an abomination to me. (laughs) Oh. So I would have had a pet fish. Now, we did have little goldfish that you could get at the five and dime store in those days, (laughs) but uh, no snakes. What is the furthest from home you have been? Well, I was trying to figure that out since I saw this question. And it's either Lhasa, Tibet, or Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'd have to get the globe out and measure. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Sushi or hibachi? I had sushi for the first time when I was 20 years old in Tokyo. And I've been addicted to it ever since. And in those days... 1960, it was hard to find in the United States. Now it's everywhere. You are having a big Thanksgiving dinner and can invite three people from American history. Who do you invite? I'm going to invite Ulysses S. Grant because I'm interested in how he figured out how to win the war and in his biography, which I hear is great, but I've never read his autobiography. I'm going to invite Woodrow Wilson because he was a Presbyterian. Was he really? Oh, yes. He was a professor at Princeton, I think, or maybe even president of the university. And then I have a toss-up between Thomas Jefferson and Harry Truman, and I'm leaning to Truman because everybody knows enough about Jefferson already. Very nice. And do you have a favorite letter of Paul? Not yet. I'm rereading them all as a consequence of this seminar, and I'm not through yet. Um, so I, I don't have a favorite letter. Okay. All right, Jim, you're next. When you were little, did you have a pet fish or a pet snake? And if not, which would you have wanted? I did not have either, and I would not have really wanted a snake for sure so maybe a pet fish but I would I had I had several dogs mm-hmm. and I favored my dogs <laughs> I had one particular dog named Shiner that was a magnificent dog and nothing could ever take the place of him so what is the furthest that you've been from home I think it's northern Ireland sushi or hibachi sushi you are having a big Thanksgiving dinner and can invite three people from American history. Who do you invite? Uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh-huh. It's just fascinating to me. I just finished the biography of uh, William Blight about Frederick Douglass. It was magnificent. And then Abraham Lincoln would 
that have to be in there. Um, it's a toss-up among several others. I hate to repeat Perriman, but I think it'd probably be U.S. Grant. Mainly because of my interest in Frederick, Frederick Douglass. And do you have a favorite letter of Paul? Yeah, I think it would have to be Galatians. Wonderful. That's mm -hmm. perfect for today's podcast. And now you can ask me questions, folks. Okay. Snake or fish? Um, we had fish, and um, I don't think I could ever handle having a snake as a pet. I hope little Samantha doesn't want a snake ever, right? No snakes. She just got a crazy grin on her face. So um, that we might have to figure that out. And what's the furthest from home you've been? I was thinking about it, and I think it's Budapest. Sushi or hibachi? Sushi, most definitely. And who are you going to invite to the Thanksgiving dinner from American history? Three people. So definitely Eleanor Roosevelt. She is one of my favorites. Um, I have quotes of hers like everywhere. And Harriet Tubman, um, what an amazing woman. I just, I, I feel like I could learn so much from her. And then the third, I don't know how we would talk, but I think I would really like to meet Helen Keller, or at least Anne. Um, and that uh, just everything that she overcame in her life. And my favorite letter of Paul. Yes. So my favorite letter of Paul would have to be Romans. I really love Romans. So as we go into our time of scripture reading, Philip, would you start us off with prayer? We pause this morning, Father, to consider the wonders of our life and the world you've given us. Uh, forgive us our shortcomings, which are many. Teach us Paul's lesson, which we illustrated once again this morning that there are no Jews or Greeks, free or slave, male or female, and grant us the capacity to work for peace in your world. Amen. Here at the Sycamore Tree, we have a practice of reading the scriptures in Lectio Divina. This is a monastic practice of reading the scripture and listening for God as the Holy Word, speaking to us through these words on the page. We will read the text for today from our own Bibles, and then we will respond to it. First, we will share only one word at a time, then we will share whole phrases, and finally, we will connect and interpret the scripture for our lives. So, Jim, would you read for us? Yes, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm reading from the NIV translation, Galatians 3, 25, 4, 7. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. 
he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Supervision, slavery, faith. Heirs, seed, whole estate. Okay, I'm going to read from a 2008 translation by four theologians entitled The Authentic Letters of Paul. And in this translation, um, these translators, as the book says, disentangle component pieces of correspondence from the composite letters and place the authentic letters in the chronological and historical order and context. And uh, it's directly from the original Greek. So beginning in the 25th verse of the third chapter of Galatians. Now that this mature confidence in God can be ours, we no longer have need for a disciplinarian. Indeed, you are all now God's adult offspring through the kind of confidence exemplified by God's anointed Jesus. So every one of you who has been baptized into solidarity with God's anointed has become invested with the status of God's anointed. You are no longer Greek or Jew, no longer slave or freeborn, no longer male and female. Instead, you all have the same status in the service of God's anointed, Jesus. <clears throat> Moreover, <clears throat> If you now belong to God's anointed, that also makes you Abraham's offspring and, as promised, his heirs. Let me put it this way. An heir who is still a minor, even though destined to inherit the whole estate, is no better off than a menial servant, but remains under the care of overseers and household managers until the time set by the father. It is the same with us. When, like children, we knew no better, we were dominated by the cosmic powers that controlled human fate. However, when the time for growing up arrived, God's Son was sent into the world, born of a woman, subject to the Jewish law, in order to emancipate those who were under the law, so that we might become God's children through adoption. Now, because you are adopted, God sent you into, sent into your hearts the same filial attitude toward God that was in Jesus that can call God Abba, Father. So as a result, you are no longer menial servants, but through what God has done, you have become adopted as children, and that means heirs. I would say anointed stands out emancipation 
Sleep and please relax. Discipline areas. And instead of adult, it's one of the, or it's sons, it's an adult offspring. Is that, mm -hmm. that stood out to me. Adult offspring. Solidarity. Heirs. Cosmic powers. Menial slaves. Thank you, Philip, for bringing that translation because I think it sure, I heard it very differently hearing those words. This is also a unique translation. It's called the Inclusive Bible, the first egalitarian translation. So I thought it'd be fun to read this passage from this Bible today. So again, we listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through chapter 4, verse 7. This time we'll be listening for a question that we would like to discuss. But now that faith is here, we are no longer in the monitor's charge. Each one of you is a child of God because of your faith in Christ Jesus. All of you have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or citizen, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, if you belong to Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham, which means you inherit all that was promised. What I am saying is that as long as the heir remains a child, it's no different from being a slave, even if the child owns everything. Since a child is under the supervision of guardians and trustees until the time set by the parent. In the same way, before we come of age, we are enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. When the designated time had come, God sent forth the Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to deliver from the law those who were subjected to it, so that we might receive our status as adopted heirs. The proof that you are children of God is the fact that God has sent forth into our hearts the spirit of the child who calls out Abba. You are no longer slaves, but daughters and sons. And if you are daughters and sons, you are also heirs by God's design. Question. What is the status of adopted heirs? I have an answer for that. Do good. This is the conversation time, so you can share. In this, there's a footnote in this translation. In the Roman world, adoption would have meant that the one adopted had the same rights and privileges as the biological heir. It does not imply second class status. Well, and similar to that, I noticed. In this one, it said, you are no longer slaves, but daughters and sons, and they're also heirs. Uh, so I'm wondering if the daughters were heirs. You know, is it, when we're trying to make the text inclusive, is it more inclusive to, for women to see themselves as sons and to see the significance of that? Or is it more inclusive to go ahead and say daughters and sons because then you're including the women. I don't, I don't know if it's more empowering to say that then you have the same 
It also raises the issue of how were daughters treated if they were the heirs in that time, and I don't know the answer to that. But in this in this new way of considering this this new way of living, if there's no longer slave free male female, I would say that the daughters would be legitimate heirs. Sure, sure. In 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 the in the Polinian interpretation of the anointed one, because but I just was asking from the cultural point of view what the what the because one of the reasons that the adopted didn't have second-class citizen was that many of the Caesars adopted the men who became the following Caesars. They were not their real biological sons. There are three or four examples of that. So there was a tradition in the Roman, Greco-Roman Empire world that made adoption equal with biological heirs. But we are no longer bound by any of the old rules. We are no longer, in my sense, this tells us that Paul was not bound, was no longer bound by Judaism. He, he, it's not to say that he, was, he would abandon Judaism, the religion of his youth and how he was raised, and it had obviously meant a lot to him and still did, but he was no longer bound by the law and rule of that. There was a new law. I thought one of the things that was important in Paul's thinking was the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham that made Abraham the father of all the nations. And in a way, this text is talking about being heirs people who were not born Jews. Um, and while he doesn't use the word covenant, he talks about that frequently. That, and he, that's kind of a re repetitive point of view. N.T. Wright brings that out a lot. And he talks about every time Paul went someplace, he had the same kind of mantra. He started with Abraham, went to Moses, went to David, da-da-da-da-da-da. Paul talks a lot about fulfilling Abraham's covenant that makes us his Abraham's offsprings, and therefore we're heirs. And that was a promise in the Hebrew scriptures. And so Paul never abandoned that element of Judaism. In fact, he emphasized it. That's right. But no longer being bound to me meant the separation between all peoples through various traditions, religions, and so forth, that created so much strife, or create so much strife. That separation, that separation is now done with. Dissolved. Dissolved. Yeah. yeah. And without that separation, then maybe people can come together. I think that's an important perspective for today, still. Perhaps we would think about the people who come to our borders differently, and perhaps we would think about the people in our neighborhoods differently. We could truly learn to understand this. I was thinking about it, I was wondering who the guardians were. You know, it seems as if Paul is talking in a metaphor. Do you, do you, do you all have an opinion about that? Or he talks about that when we were, that 
your minors and when the guardians are showing us the way. Do you think he's talking about Moses there or an Abraham? Or? You know, I hadn't thought about it in, in those terms. I just kind of took it literally. And he was uh, referring to the fact that they're always somebody around when you're a kid that's your boss. Uh -huh. You know, the foreman at the ranch, even though you might be the the rancher's son, you're only 12 years old, the foreman is going to tell you what to do. <laughs> but, you know, with this new dispensation, this new way of looking at things, to me, the role of the guardian is, change, is changing. Explain that. Well, the fact that we are no longer separate, there's no, one, no longer going to be anyone to rule over us in a sense. We live in mutuality. And that the guardian is going to help and raise and guide this heir in a different way, I would say, than he normally had. Because I, I find that fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. But, I mean, I think there are kind of three things that are crucial to, to what Paul did and who Paul was. Number one, his concept of Jesus representing the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, which as a consequence of the resurrection, which almost is the crucial piece, the, the linchpin in his thinking. The second one is the thing we read in this text, neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, free or slave. But the third one to me that's important in, in understanding Paul is that we are the body of Christ and each member, whether you're the big toe or the heart or the nose, is important to the overall uh, whole of the thing, the community. And so what you're saying is uh, the manager, the foreman, has a role to play just like the kid has a role to play. Uh, and neither one is more important than the other. You can't function without them in their role. But mutuality and servanthood rules in this new arrangement. It's a world-changing event. As it was talking about us being at some point a child and then another part an heir, I was thinking to myself about people who are non-believers and then believers. Um, and then it occurred to me that even though it says there is no Jew or Greek, I've always thought about that as like, about their ethnicity. But I wonder if he's also speaking about faith. So is he is he talking about, I guess he's, he is talking about not outside of the faith, within the faith of all of you who are baptized, all of all of you who believe there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or citizen. Well, I think it's a two-pronged two thing. I think, yes, that's true in Paul's writing and thinking for those who become part of the assemblies, part of the gatherings, of the, part of the Jesus movement. Uh, but I th also think it's true in Paul's thinking from the point of view of all the nations are now part of the covenant that 
that Jesus' resurrection confirms that all the peoples of all the nations, as well as the Jews, are now part of God's covenant with Abraham. Uh-huh. So it, I think there's both a specific and a general way you could interpret that idea. I'm, I'm going to read a, a brief quote from uh, a work by Gary Wills, What Paul Meant. And he says, religion took over the legacy of Paul as it did that of Jesus because they both opposed it, meaning religion. They said that the worship of God is a matter of interior love, not based on external observances or temples or churches or hierarchies or priesthoods. Both, that meaning Jesus and Paul, were at odds with those who impose the burdens of religion and punish those who try to escape them. They were radical egalitarians, though in ways that delved below and soared above conventional politics. They were on the side of the poor and saw through the rich. They saw only two basic moral duties, love of God and love of the neighbor. Both were liberators, not imprisoners, so they were imprisoned. Paul meant what Jesus meant, that love is the only law. Paul's message to us is not one of guilt and dark constraint. It is this. And then he goes on to do the piece from uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which was whatever things are true, whatever honorable, whatever making for the right, whatever lovable, whatever admirable, if there is any virtue, anything of high esteem, think on these. And that's from, from Philippians 4, 8 through 9, which is another beautiful piece. So I guess, again, just to reestablish my point, everything turned around in this new dispensation. The, there was no longer someone up here and no longer someone down here. And everyone was working together to, to make this separation go away as much as possible. And therefore, bring peace. I think there's a tendency to think of Paul as an uptight, legalistic Pharisee. And in a way, the book of Romans is so complicated, it contributes to that view. But these passages, like the one in Philippians, uh, reveal a totally different kind of Paul, uh, and it's far more appealing to me. Thank you both for being with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners who've been with us here today. Thank you for coming to our house, and we'll see you next time at the Sycamore Tree. Or catch us on Sundays at St. Luke's Presbyterian Church in Amarillo, Texas.